we've been in Iowa for almost 21 years. I'm from the state of Wyoming. I grew up there. So if I have not offended you yet, I probably will. Um, <laughs> since I grew up in Wyoming, we talk about different things than you do in Iowa. We're not quite as cultured. Some of you rednecks, like we are kindred spirits, and I am not offending you. But we talk a lot about guns and critters and, you know, maybe body functions and some of those things, and that's just normal conversation. So if you are more cultured and you're offended, it's not you, it's me. I also grew up with three younger brothers. I have no sisters. And boys tend to talk about guns and critters and body functions. And so when that's part of my normal conversation growing up, if you're offended, again, it's not you, it's me. And then finally, I did not grow up in garb culture at all. I did not, General Association of Regular Baptists, that was new for me moving to Iowa, and I thought it was maybe a body function. I wasn't sure. <laughs> so the truth is, if you're offended by something I say, it's not you, it's me, right? I'm just putting that out there, because sometimes I say things and people look at me, and you will notice that about my children, so please give them an extra measure of grace, because that is their culture. <laughs> That's what we grew up with, and on the farm, and you know how those things go. All right, healing with the word. What does it look like to imitate God and walk in love in an abusive relationship? I'm going to tell you straight up, this is not a session I look forward to giving. This is a difficult session. For those of you that were camp counselors this summer, um, I provided a session in counselor training on um, identifying and biblically addressing sexual abuse, especially as it relates to children. Um, this is kind of along those same lines, just those really hard things in life that, number one, we don't always see, number two, we don't want to talk about, number three, therefore, we don't know how to talk about it and we don't know how to think about it. So um, I come at this with a lot of fear and trepidation, the fact that I may say something that is wrong. Honestly, if it's the Word of God and it offends you or you're not sure how to take it, I don't care. I'm okay with that, and I understand that. But my fear is that I would misrepresent God or his word. Um, so if you have questions about what I present or how it's presented, I always welcome you to come and talk to me about it. When I finished my um, master's, which was at Faith Bible Seminary in Lafayette, this was my thesis. And then I sent it to a publisher and said, are we even on the same page? Like, do you even agree with where I'm coming from? And she said, if you can put this in book form in three months, you have a contract. So I sat down and wrote and wrote um, and just put on paper what I had studied and what had gone through my head in those year and a half or two years leading up to that. And that's where I'm coming from today. So it's not that this is just something I put together in the last month. This is something that has been ongoing, something I've been studying and interacting with women and working with for easily three to five years, maybe longer as, as far as an intense, um, an intentional 
look at God's word and an intense, intentional look at the suffering of women. So that's where we're going with this today. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. And God, I am so aware of the weight of sin and the weight of deception um, and the weight of suffering. And so even as we begin this, I am so thankful for Jesus Christ that you, as our Heavenly Father, Creator, Designer, and Sovereign, have not only, you not only know suffering intellectually, but you have experienced that same suffering. And you understand it, and you have given us your word, and you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so I pray that you would bless this. I pray that you would direct my words, that they would be true and right and good and helpful, that they would bring life and not death. And God, I do pray for the women here today that you would use this to give them courage and comfort and strength, and that you would also use it in their lives to come alongside and help others who are hurting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If we're going to look at domestic abuse, this is actually a legal definition Domestic violence is a pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship used by one partner to gain or maintain power and control over another intimate partner. It's illegal and it does not say physical. It's, it's a pattern of abusive behavior. It can be emotional, it can be psychological, it can be financial, it can be digital, and a lot of those go together. It is a pattern. I'm going to show you this because I don't know how many of you have seen this. This is a construct that's put together um, by the Duluth Project, actually out of Duluth, Minnesota, and what they did was they studied the various tactics that individuals use to maintain power and control. So power and control is in the middle. Men, specifically, I'm talking about men because that's generally the way it's used. It's very seldom women, and we can talk about that perhaps. Um, but men who desire power and control may be angry, but it's not an anger problem. It's a power and control problem, and they use anger to manipulate and to get what they want. So if you're looking at this and you're saying, oh, that looks familiar, then you might want to start asking more questions as we're going through this presentation. If you're saying, I've seen that in a friend, or I've seen that in my home, or I've seen that in passing, I didn't realize that's what it was. I'm trying to give you words because we don't often have words. So what I was trained to do in seminary as a biblical counselor is to study what's available in our secular culture to use the science of people and observation of people, bring it to God's word. Does God's word address this? How do we address it biblically? And what is the biblical solution? Okay, so domestic violence is a thing. It is addressed in scripture. We're going to use what science and the rest of the world has produced to bring it to scripture and then to give us some answers that are long-term. Isolation is huge. 
If you're noticing a woman who is no longer available before or after services, can't come and go as she pleases, starts to cut off friendships, starts to cut off family relationships, you're going to start asking some more questions. You're not going to see this if you're outside of this situation. This is very controlled, it's very hidden, it's very secret. So you will know it if this is you. You will know it if this is someone you live closely with. If that's not you or someone you live closely with, this is good to pay attention to. And then you know what you're looking for. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what you're looking for. A woman experiencing abuse is not the problem. She is not at fault. She cannot fix or change the problem. But this is also a dangerous situation. And those of us from the outside who try to come alongside and help her have to realize that there is very little we can do without putting her in more danger. So we always let her be the expert. And we always go to her and say, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Sometimes just pray. Sometimes just be here when I need somebody. Sometimes look up something on your computer. Can I use your computer to look something up? So we're not intervening, but we make ourselves available. This is a biblical construct, so I, we're going to turn to Luke 22, verses 25 and 26. So I have verse 25 up on the board. Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Do you see that pattern? Exercise? Lordship, it's a pattern. It's a continued thing. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. So Jesus already says, and again, this is um, a social science construct, but it explains what Jesus is saying in a way that maybe we can understand it. You have one individual who considers himself as more important, an individual who is over, who has the power. They are entitled, they are special, they are better than, they get to call the shots. That's what's in their head, and that's how they see themselves. This exists in any abusive situation, whether you're talking child abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, you always have an individual who sees themselves as entitled or special. They are the exception. They are God's gift to humanity. Then you have an individual under. So you have someone who is less than, someone who legitimately may be in a position underneath that person in authority. All right? A child or um, a wife. The problem is when, when God looks at us, he's looking at two equal individuals, man and woman, male and female. He created them in his image. One is not less than the other. But in this situation, you have someone who actually sees himself as more than and she is less than. This is why it's very unusual to have a woman who is abusive because she very seldom has the power in her hand. If she has a better job and she's making more money and she can use that, 
If she has the relationships and her family and her support, she can use that against her husband. But if she doesn't have power to wield, she's not going to be the abuser. He'll make her think she is. That comes in later. All right. Then you also have objectification. This is why pornography is so dangerous. And this is why it is such an issue and why it leads to so many abusive relationships. Because the person who is over views the person who is under as an object. They view them as someone to be used. So you and I will hear about Nazi Germany and say, how could they do that? How could they take six million Jews and exterminate people like cattle? Because they were over, someone else was under, and they objectified them. They were not people. They were not seen as made in God's image. They were there to be used for the person, other person's benefit. And then, and you see that in Jesus's, you have Gentiles exercising lordship over them, exercising authority over them, and then finally there are no consequences. So they are isolating, they are coercing, they are manipulating, they are blaming, they are outright lying, denying, minimizing, and nobody knows and nobody else cares, and nobody else sees it. Or other people see it, and then they justify it. Well, you know, you're supposed to be submissive to your husband. This is not what Jesus is talking about. Because if you read the next verse, we're going to use context, right? We know. This is how this works. Jesus said... It is not this way among you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Jesus' example is not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So what Jesus does is instead of expressing power over and using that, he creates power under And he lifts the person who is in need. And he provides for those of us who are weak. And he sacrificially gives of himself to benefit someone who is in need. That's why domestic abuse is wrong. Biblically, it is not Jesus' example. It's not Jesus' plan for marriage. It's not Jesus' plan for our relationships. And this is why it is wrong, because it's not the way Jesus works. How do we help? Well, the first thing is safety, and we need Jesus. She is not at fault. She cannot change her husband. She cannot fix the, res- the situation. He is responsible for his choices and behavior, and she's only responsible for herself. So we need to observe, we need to move slowly, and we want to be smart. You want to provide physical safety. If there is a point in time where she needs physical safety, we want to help her with that. That's something the church can do. Ladies, we, the church, men and women, have so many resources for a woman who is in need. If she needs out and she has children, she needs a place to go. 
She needs someone to help her make appointments. She needs help with transportation. She needs help with food. Do we know how to do those things? We are the church. I mean, this is what we do. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, and we are so equipped, and we so often fail to help our women in these situations because we don't see it, we don't understand it in a biblical context, and we don't know how to help. We can provide physical safety. We can provide personal safety. In the newer research that's being done, another word for domestic abuse is coercive control. Coercive control is actually a term that comes out of wartime, and um, you're going to be familiar with this because prisoners of war were kept captive without construct, right? Korea, Vietnam, the brainwashing, that whole situation where people were kept and contained without physical restraints. And that is exactly what happens in domestic abuse situations. And it's being called coercive control. That's where another person actually has control of someone else's whereabouts, goings, doings, freedom, without lifting a finger. And so what they are also doing is they are talking about a target and an agent. Your target is the woman who is chosen. She's done nothing wrong. She has no control over the situation. But your agent is using her to objectify her to meet his own needs and desires and to feed his need, his desire for power and control. So if we can provide her personal safety and just say, hey, um, I need your help Tuesday afternoon. Could you come to my house for a couple of hours and give her a couple of hours of break? Let her lead on this. But if you see a situation that looks wrong, feels wrong, sounds wrong, and you can provide her with some comfort, some encouragement, just some space to be alone. Um, I meet with a gal, and I'm going to tell you, when I share information, I'm not going to share enough that you know who it is, and I have their permission to share circumstances as much as is helpful to you. So with COVID, she's working at home, and her husband and he follows her, and he's unemployed, and she's the one making the money, and she can't work, and she can't think, and she can't go because he's always there. So as we meet, <laughs> and I, uh, as much as I can, I use an advocate who is someone else who is already part of their life, who is part of their church body, or another believer who comes alongside, because we are the body. This is not the magic hour, right? We can't do any magic potion when we're in a counseling session, but we can use the body. And her advocate says, so what happens if you go in a room and shut the door? And she said, I never thought of that. I could shut the door. And I said, and instead of him interrupting, what if you just said, if you need me and something comes up, would you just put a sticky note on the door? And then I'll address all the sticky notes when I come out for lunch. I could do, is that simple? But does it create her some space? And does that create her a place to think and a place to read her Bible? 
and a place to invest in the Word of God. They can be the smallest things, and you don't have to do rocket science, but you can help think and come up with some ways to create space. Offer to meet her in a park. The thing that will drive him is not wanting anybody to know and not wanting to look bad. People-pleasing, absolute. If you know that, and she knows that, and you can use that to get her some safety, you know what? All the ladies from church are meeting at the park at 2 o'clock, and if I'm not there, they'll wonder what's wrong, and they'll wonder why I can't come to the park because everyone else is at the park. All right, we bought her some personal safety. If we can help her with their children and keeping them safe, if she's experiencing abuse, then the children are experiencing that. Not necessarily directly from him in that situation, but there is that whole sense of safe and not safe and trauma and processing and pain and suffering and guilt and shame and all of those pieces that compound for those children. So how can we come alongside and help? We can provide safety. Um, watch, pray, listen, pray, believe, pray. This is in your notes because you just, we need this. Follow her lead, pray, and trust God. Um, she is not at fault, and she cannot change her husband. He alone is responsible for his choices and behavior. The effects of abuse... A woman experiencing coercive control is not her own. She is penalized for making decisions. She is kept off balance. She is confused. She is isolated. And it's no wonder that when the heat comes in the form of stress or hardship, that affects her thoughts, her words, and her actions because they're under the control of her husband and this is how she feels. And this is the kind of spiritual fruit she's experiencing in that situation. And if you've ever been in a place like this, you can only imagine what it is to live in a place like this. And no one else knows. And you are isolated from the body of Christ. And you are isolated from the people that know and love you. Jesus came to bring freedom healing, and redemption, and Jesus sets us free. So this is where we go to our Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. What does God say about who she is? We've talked about safety. So we've identified what the problem is, what it looks like, um, how it works a little bit, like 45 minutes is just the tip of the iceberg. But if we can just be, start to be aware and look, we want to provide safety. And now we're going to add the Jesus, all right, in the little bit of time we have left. How are we doing? We're doing good, ladies. We're doing so good. You're doing well. You're sticking with me. <laughs> Thank you. This is a hard one. All right. In Ephesians, I'm going to do you a disservice by jumping in at chapter 5 with verses 1 and 2, but thank you to Mr. Stearns because this does have a context. Paul is writing to the churches, and you need to know this leading up to this because it makes a huge difference. Chapter 1 in Ephesians, who you are and the gifts that God has given you in Christ. 
chapter 2, who you were and how you were separated from God, but how he sent Jesus so that those who were far off could be drawn near and we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are part of the covenant with Israel. Chapter 3, Paul's prayer that we would know and understand the depth and the width and the love of Christ for us. Chapter 4, how does that look in the church body? Like, what part does the body have to play in this? And what does it look like to have all of these wonderful gifts in Christ, to be brought near, to have the love of Christ? And this is how the church builds on that. Here we are, chapter 5. So this is how you put it into action. And that's where we're going. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus, adding Jesus, changes everything. When she looks at herself through her husband's eyes, the one who is over her, the one who is objectifying her, she has the experience of barrenness, of being alone, of feeling in bondage, of not living out her purpose. We talked about that yesterday. But we're going to add Jesus. And when she can see herself the way Jesus sees her, when you are loving her and when you are speaking truth and you are loving her the way Jesus loved her and reminding her, Jesus gave himself for you, you are worth the life and the death of God's Son. He did not save you for this. He did not save you to, to live and endure hardship in this way. Suffering, yes. Unavoidable suffering, no. Sin at the hands of someone else with no intervention, no. That is not what Jesus died for. There are three ways of looking at ourselves. We can look at ourselves as a sinner. We're all sinners. My husband and I do good news club in the elementary school. And my husband once said, so when, they, when Jesus went, called Peter to be one of the disciples, what was Peter? A sinner! Um, yes, he was a sinner. He was also a fisherman. <laughs> But, okay, we'll take it. They, they know we are all sinners. We are saints when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And how often do we actually speak to one another and build each other up as saints in Christ? I don't know about you, but I need to do a better job of that, of speaking to one another, not just as sinners, but as saints. And third, we are sufferers, and we experience life through suffering. And that's where this woman is. She is experiencing suffering, and we are addressing her suffering. Statistically, one in four women experience domestic abuse. One in four. And it's no different inside the church than outside. So as I look at even the women that are here at the retreat, um, that's a lot of women. And it doesn't mean you're still living in that situation. You may have gone in and out of a situation like that. You may still be there. So I am not going to talk about her. I'm going to talk to you. So, sorry. You women sit in front of me all the time. All the time I sit down with women. 
Um, watch, if you are this woman, watch and pray. And pray and seek a safe place and share your story and trust God. Because you are not at fault. You cannot change your husband. You cannot fix this situation. But God is using it. And he will use it. So seeing how yourself through Jesus' eyes, when that heat comes, you have different thoughts about yourself and who you are. You're going to God's word and you're not reading them as words of condemnation. You are reading them as words of love and comfort and acceptance and approval. And when we as women come alongside women who are suffering and we are loving you and showing you that unconditional love of Christ, it changes the way you think about yourself and your circumstances. It changes the way you act and interact and it also bears fruit. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5, talks about changing our actions and our thinking. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking. If you live with a man who is using power and control, these words are going to sound very familiar to you. Filthiness, foolish talking, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater, a man who is hungry for power and control, is an idolater. He is not content with what God has given him, and he wants more. And he wants you to worship at his feet rather than worshiping together at the Lord's feet. He is an idolater. This man has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And all of a sudden, you start to see what's happening in your home for what it is. And it has a word and it has a name. And Jesus says it's wrong. It takes time. And as you start to see this, you need to be aware that the thing you are going to struggle with the most and the hardest as you walk through this process, is grief. You are not seeing it for what it is. And once you start seeing the truth of what's going on and you realize this isn't the way love looks and I am being used and I am being taken advantage of and you start to respond to denial with honesty and candor, there is going to be a huge hole in your life and there is going to be a lot of grief as we see women and we start helping them name the sin for what it is we can expect them to be grieving and we want to start with honesty I was thinking was it last night Mr. Stearns was reading through Colossians and the list of all the sins right that you put off used in Colossians 3 see God gives us names for sin And when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for some nebulous cloud of sin. He died for specific sin. And he names it what it is, and he calls it what it is. So as we have the mind of Christ, and we're starting to name it for what it is, then we have turned the tables on this because we're bringing what was in darkness into the light. 
And that's where we go next. We go to our response. Ephesians 5, 6 through 14. So how do we respond? This is terrifying. And this can only be done supernaturally with the help of God and the word of God. I'm just telling you, this does not work if you don't have Jesus Christ living in you. And this works so powerfully well when we have a church that works alongside us, starting with verse 6 in Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't empower that as much as you're able. Don't be smart. Move slow. But we are not putting ourselves in a position of feeding that kind of behavior. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and look at what this light is. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's what it looks like to address abuse. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Seeing your value, worth, and purpose gives you courage to do what's right. One woman terrified me. We had been doing Bible studies, and she understood. She was starting to understand her husband's desire was for power and control. She knew something was wrong. She she didn't understand, and we were visiting. And one of his ploys was to take the children when he got angry with her. He was the only one who had keys to the vehicle. She didn't have that access to that so when he got angry he would say children to the van we're leaving and then he would punish her and depending on how angry he was that's how long he would stay away with the children and he wouldn't answer his phone he wouldn't tell her where they went he just disappeared and one day when he grabbed his keys and he said children go to the van I say she terrified me she ran up in front of him and she said you are a coward and I'm calling you out. And if you love me, and if you think I've done something wrong, then you're going to get on your knees, and you're going to kneel and pray with me. And you're going to pray that God fixes this, and that he changes my heart, because you're, you're not going to be a coward. And she said, children, now. And they got on their knees. And she started praying. <laughs> and he didn't know what to do. <laughs> He's like, um... Okay, yeah, I guess we're not. And they all got on their knees and they started praying. And she prayed for herself. She didn't pray for him, that God would change the situation. And so when you see who God is and how he works, I'm not saying we do things rash and we want to be very careful. We want to be smart. We want to work according to God's word. But you also, when you're the individual in that situation, you know that other person and you bring scripture into that situation and you address your own heart with scripture and then you respond with scripture. 
And you're not going to go tell the whole church and the whole world what's going on unless that's the way God moves you, but you can find a friend and you can start opening up to them. And ladies, I'm going to tell you, she's not going to tell you everything. You are not ready for everything, and she hasn't processed it, and she can't even tell you everything. But she's going to give you a little piece, and she's going to see if she can trust you. And if she can trust you with that little piece to keep it quiet, to not tell her husband, to not step in and intervene and take power away, then she'll give you a little bit more. And she'll give you a little bit more. And so when you are trustworthy, you can be used in a very powerful way. But first you have to believe her and you have to be available. Jesus knows. He knows the danger of darkness. And if it's in your house and it feels hidden and shameful, it is. You are not at fault. You cannot change your husband. You cannot fix the situation. He is making choices, and he is responsible for those choices. The proper response to evil is not evil, but good. Um, 1 Peter 3. So I'm just going to give you some. You can write these down. I have 1 Peter 3, Proverbs 31, 12, and Romans 8, 28, and 29. I'm going to condense this a little bit. You are familiar with this because it is a good biblical teaching to not return evil with evil but with good, right? We know that. That's Romans 12. That's 1 Peter 3. One woman got in trouble with her pastor who said it was mutual abuse because she threw a plate. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Like, she's throwing things. That doesn't sound like her. But I visited with her about it a while later, and I said, tell me about the plate. Like, why did you throw the plate? She said, well, the truth is we had a disagreement at supper. So he walked over, and he put his hand on my food, and he smashed it all together, and then he shoved my face in it and told me to eat it. And I threw the plate. And I was like, yeah, throw the plate. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a situation of mutual violence. I'm just telling you, he initiated it. He's the one driving this. He's the one that wants power and control. And then she would say, but I do things, like I respond with evil to evil. And I said, yeah, don't we all? That is what we do in our human nature. But that does not mean that you are abusive. That does not make you responsible for this whole twisted mess in your house. What it means is you're returning evil for evil. So let's return evil with good. Because God tells us in his word, Proverbs 31 verse 12, that the virtuous woman does her husband good and not harm all the days of his life. True? Well, that's okay. I like that. Okay, that sounds good. Um, so I'm looking at that word good and I'm saying, wow, okay, what does good mean? I looked it up, you'll, you'll be glad to know, and it means um, beneficial, helpful, um, right, good, let me find all of my lovely words here, I thought I put them in a way I could find them, oh yeah, useful, pleasant, upright, excellent, it profits others, it is a help. 
For many of us who have grown up in Sunday school and we have not lived in these situations, we have a definition of good. Even living in a situation like this, you have a definition of good. And I'm going to challenge you that our definition of good often means nice. And nice is not in the Bible. So when God is talking about good and something that benefits another, if I have a person who is sinning against me, their good is repentance. Their good is to see their sin and to turn to God. Their sin is not for them to like me, or their good is not for them to like me. Their good is not for me to look good to other people and get away with all of this. That is not what God defines as good. God defines good as repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And if I look at Romans 8, 28, and 29, all things work together for good to those that loved God, love God and are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say that that good is to be conformed to the image of his son. My husband's good is to be like Jesus. My husband's good is not to get away with it, not to have a reputation, not to have a ministry or a job or a family built on deceit. My husband's good is to see his sin and to turn to the Lord. That's not something I can do. That's something the Holy Spirit does. But I can do good. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Have you thought about what that actually looks like? To confront that? It's scary. So we do what's right, and we please God, and we pray. So that's why, that's why you go back to this little watch, pray, listen, pray, believe, pray. Find someone you can share with, pray. This looks like trouble, and it sounds like trouble. And it could be trouble, but it's right, and it's good, and we want to be careful with how we do it, realizing that you are not at fault. You are not responsible for his choices. You are only responsible for yourself. You pray, you observe, you move slowly, and you be smart. I'm an advocate for our family resources in Muscatine County, so I've had their training. Uh, law enforcement will call me, or I go to the hospital, or I go to the courthouse, um, I can't always share Christ. Sometimes I can. But it's always about loving them. It's always about loving. It's always out, about believing. It's always about trusting God with the situation because I can't fix it. Ladies, you can't fix it. Even for the people you love most, there is nothing you can do. But God can. And so your faith is going to be tested in the fire. How much do you trust God by saying nothing, doing nothing, simply being available, listening, believing, praying, helping, and letting God do what God will do? And so we have to be very careful because we're fixers and helpers, and we want to step in. Um, and... It affects our worship. Ephesians 5, 
I won't read the whole passage there, 15 through 21, but it talks about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we change our thoughts and we think about ourselves the way God thinks about us, and we respond the way that God has called us to respond, it results in worship, and we can worship him. And we can fall before him, and he is our sovereign. The rest of Ephesians chapter 6 is how do you walk then in all these situations? We're not going to read the, the rest of Ephesians. But this chapter applies not just to domestic abuse, which I've, I've taken it in that context because I want us to see how love works that out. But... <laughs> It tells us how to walk in every circumstance, in every relationship, in every situation. This was one of my favorite commercials growing up. All right, let's see if it works. Pay attention, please, thank you. It's next day there. Evening, we are. Very nice. Having no choice is no fun. That's why at Wendy's, I'm not every hamburger isn't dressed the same. You'll get your choice Wish of fresh toppings, fresh tomatoes, fresh lettuce, fresh There's onions, cheese, bacon, and more. Having a choice is better than not. Is next swim there. Choose fresh. Choose Wendy's. Ah, oh, that's it. Yes. <laughs> so what does it look like to wear Christ? <laughs> it means that in every situation, in every circumstance, whether it's in my marriage, submitting to my husband as to the Lord doesn't mean that he is the Lord. It means, is submitting to my husband in this way worship? Am I worshiping God in, in what my husband is asking, in the way I'm responding to him, in the way that I parent, in the way that I go to work, in the way that I do spiritual warfare? I am wearing the same clothes. I'm wearing my spin bear, my day bear, my night bear. Everywhere I go, my bear. Because that's what it is to live and walk in Christ and to be consistent in all of those relationships and all of those settings. So... Here are some resources. You have some on the bottom of your page that are different. Um, my book, Sanctuary, is in the bookstore. This is about addressing the heart of a victim, because obviously we can't change her situation. But how can we help her see herself in Christ? That's the whole point. It's um, out. Oh, that got kind of messed up. So it's out on Kindle now. It's also available in bookstore, and I'm working on an audio book. I think we're in chapter six right now. I have a website. I'll be doing a Bible study. If you are interested, if you are a ministry leader or a pastor's wife, someone who works with women, I will be leading us through instruments in the Redeemer's hands starting this Thursday. There is no cost. Um, just sign up. We'll do it via Zoom so that we can learn how to help others. There's a sign-up in the back, or you can use the little 
toggle thing on the bottom of your paper. There are some other resources there. Chris Moles addresses the hearts of men. So if you get home and your pastor needs resources, point him there. Um, and then Darby Strickland has a book coming out in the next week. It's released on the 16th. You can order it in advance called Is It Abuse? And that is a book that says, is this really abuse? What does the Bible have to say about it? And it's a really helpful resource to just diagnose and say what's going on here. We need to pray so we can get to our next workshop because Amy is next, right? Talking about contentment in singleness. So if you've been challenged, um, especially as it relates to contentment, that would be good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these women. God, I pray that you would give us a heart that seeks and longs and searches after you and makes you our priority, that we um, we live in a way that pleases you. We live based on your power and your character and your work in our lives, and we trust you with everything. And God, I do pray for those who are living in difficult situations, especially as it relates to their husbands. God, I pray that you would be their refuge and their strength and their comfort and their courage, that they would find you to be their deliverer and that they would run to you for the righteous runs to you and is safe. And God, we thank you that you are always and always will be that safe place. We pray this in Jesus' name.